Welcome back to The Stack. This week we speak with Rob Kay, otherwise known as Mockrux Nomdep, CTO of Blockchain, Flint Wallet, and Urban Development Company, DC Spark. If you wish, as I wish, to know what that means, follow along with us like a District Columbian on the Washington Beltway, as we direct our currents into the porches of your ears, paint you a picture like a detective comic, and parp on about decentralization, decentralization, decentralization. Is Solana decentralized? Is it dead, Cardano? DC Spark does not forget these disputers and challengers, but in the realm of deft computers, nothing beats an urbit when you put a visor on it. And putting a visor on it is just what Rob and Myrtle Wackdick have done. I'm a Yerby boy, I'm a Yerby boy. Let's go. Da Capo. How the devil, how the devil did you find out about Urbit in the first place? And how'd you get right. into it? So going back to late 2019, Q3, Q4, I think, um, I was at the time doing a research position at a startup accelerator. So I was doing some blockchain research on various topics related to peer-to-peer messaging, some invoice-related stuff regarding blockchains and how you can make that more efficient. Uh, initially on a blockchain that I started developing a off-chain peer-to-peer messaging uh, network. And in the process of doing that, one of the uh, directors of the research program I was part of was actually an early Urbit investor, or he bought a star when it was like, you know, during one of the sales, when it was like 215 or 512 or whatever, or 256 or 512 for a star. And so because the area of topic that I was starting to do research into was much more, you know, messaging, networking, off blockchains, he kind of mentioned that, hey, there's also this project called Urbit, and you should probably check it out because it's, you know, not one-to-one perfect overlap, but it's quite reasonable overlap for what you're doing. And so then that kind of got me interested. That whole research stint went well, but due to whatever, some business decisions by people above me, um, it didn't end up turning into a full-fledged project. And so then since that kind of flopped, I moved on to another job that was more blockchain-based uh, at another company. Um but in the background, I actually started to get into Urbit. And so what was initially kind of interesting to me was the idea that, hey, you have this entire system that does peer-to-peer messaging that can both solve you know, the focuses of centralization issues on the internet itself. But what was really interesting to me at the time was I was thinking through the lens of blockchains and how almost every single new protocol for blockchains was kind of edging its way towards the off-chain. And so you needed a peer-to-peer messaging solution where people have first-class identities to solve that. Because without that, that's just a pain in the ass. And that's kind of what I was trying to figure out and think of how can you make a good network without having to recreate everything from scratch. But even like the solution that I came up with that ended up flopping or ended up being cut uh, from above, it was a lot more ad hoc just because, you know, starting from first principles isn't very easy and building everything from scratch is very hard. But the fact that Urbit did that and then, you know, it, it's alive, running, working today or, you know, back then, 2019, um, that was really impressive. And so the fact that that project didn't turn into anything on my side and that Urbit 
existed, continues to exist, and is, you know, 25,000 times more complex and started from better fundamentals and ended at a much stronger position, giving it, you know, first class identity messaging and computation. It's actually really impressive. And that's what drew me in in the first place. What's it what's it like working with uh, the networking primitives in because I've heard, for instance, like uh, Tim Luck has Tim Luck has, has mentioned that that mm-hmm. it it's um, more than more than sort of any other paradigm that he's seen. It, it makes um, peer to peer programming um, specifically much, much easier uh, for yep. developers. So what's that like? Right. So I can just kind of give you an example of like what the experience is like on average outside of Urban. So. When you want to create a peer-to-peer application, you effectively assume that most people don't have a computer with open ports, right? And so then what you end up doing is everyone jumps onto AWS or Google Cloud or you know whatever your preferred services are. And the infrastructure to have like direct access between nodes is more focused on just getting these servers running on these megacorps uh, infrastructure and then building around that. And then the actual programming experience on top of that is pretty crappy because as most people or most devs have who have tried to do peer-to-peer know, it's effectively, you know, you have IP, you have ports, you have TCP or UDP, choose these and then hard code their IPs, like somehow talk with these people, make sure they have a static IP, because that's a whole other problem is that uh, outside of these uh, megacorp servers, typically most people don't have a a static IP. And so like their home IP will be changing every X number of days or even their business IP, unless you buy a static IP. And so that's kind of another issue where getting up and running just to have an IP in port that's static is a not trivial problem, but if you want to have a peer-to-peer solution, there's no default way of like updating your IP table. And so what that means is, you know, like in Urbit, you have stars and galaxies and they uh, act as the routing nodes. In the normal internet, when you want to make a peer-to-peer system, no one at all knows where the hell you are, what your IP is, if your IP changes, there's no way to update anyone. And so all this core infrastructure on the networking level when you like create crappy, sorry, not crappy, excuse me. When you create a brand new uh, novel blockchain that may not be, uh, you know, a fork of Ethereum, but you're starting from bare bones basics and creating a blockchain either that's a crappy test or something that will one day be a, you know, a real blockchain. All these uh, projects, they just hard code a bunch of IPs. And so it was like super, super rigid. It, it breaks easily. And that's why they end up relying on megacorp infrastructure because they have no way to easily route between nodes. And even though, you know, I'm on my computer, you're on your computer, we may both know each other's IPs currently, but if you move or, you know, your IP changes or anything happens, suddenly everything breaks. And then, you know, there's no discovery mechanism. There's no routing mechanism. And so it's all extremely rigid because the current internet and all of the infrastructure is built around the server client model. And so everyone assumes, you know, you just have a server, static IP, you know, uh, you don't need your ports open. No one really cares. You can have crappy routers that just, you know, uh, firewall everything and are a pain in the ass, as I know uh, Ed has been complaining about for WebRTC stuff. Um, And so it's kind of annoying because 
the entire stack has hyper focused on just getting the client server model to work. And then when you want to go in the peer to peer direction, everything's just terrible and nothing is really specialized or created to make it easier. And so there are some pushes with like lib P2P, which is a library that tries to um, make this stuff simpler, but it's still just a half-assed solution. I mean, it's great engineering work. What they're doing is really awesome, but they don't have enough fundamentals like deep down in the design of it to make it work as well as Urbit. And so when you do jump on Urbit, you can really tell the difference because like me sending you a message over the Urbit network is just, you know, bar high, have silver there. Or I can literally poke any Gaul agent on your ship in like 20 characters in Dojo. That's actually pretty insane given the fact that I could, for example, you know, spawn a new moon or breach or just have a brand new ship that has never talked to you ever. I could go to some, you know, corner of the world in who knows, like some jungle somewhere in Asia. And I, if, as long as I have an internet connection, I can still poke your ship and through the stars and galaxies, your, the routing to find your IP will be done and then we'll be able to talk. And worst case, you know, if I'm behind firewalls or whatever, the galaxies will still route my packets. And that's something that's effectively no other system on earth currently can even come close to providing like that level of strength of networking. And that's something that's pretty amazing that like that's all just abstracted away. And from the developer experience, I can just say, hey, poke capsule ring there. It'll get to you, assuming I have an internet connection. And that's really, really powerful. And a lot of people don't understand that because everyone's just on like user space level and they assume, oh, it just works, right? But the reason it works is because it's all abstracted towards the client server model and no one really looks deeper because it's too hard. <laughs> and when people do look deeper, they end up just deciding, hey, it's not worth it, too much effort. And so that's what really Urbit brings to the table that's really new is that you don't have to, for the majority of people, understand how the networking layer works, but the fact that it just does work allows you to build a lot more peer-to-peer uh, -peer applications, protocols, and so forth a lot easier. Did you start DC Spark before you before you knew about Urbit, how long has DC Spark been around and, and who did you start that with? Yeah, yeah. so uh, DC Spark is a startup that's six or seven months old now, or I think around seven now. Um, so I can give you the whole spiel. So effectively, I can give you even a timeline going back a little bit. So as I mentioned previously, I was um, doing that research position, uh, 2019. And then eventually after that, I moved on into a uh, R&D engineer at a blockchain company uh, called the Merco. And then after that, uh, I was there for, I think a year and a half, halfway through, I became head of research there. And then uh, me and two other, uh, my two current co-founders of DC Spark, who are all from that company, we decided to leave and start our own company. And so effectively me, uh, who I am CSO, so Chief Science Officer, uh, our CEO, Nico, who is our you know, CEO, and our CTO, Sebastian. We are all from that company, and we work really well together. We knew each other for at least, I think, two and a half years. They knew each other a bit longer than that. And effectively, we wanted to go off on our own path. 
And specifically, I really want to start building on Urbit and within the confines of the previous crypto company. You know, it's very hard to go to the CEO and say, hey, what you're doing is cool, but I really want to go left when you want to go right. You know, they don't want to pivot off them that much. And so I was going to go my own way in either case and start an Urbit company or do something within that realm just because I was very convinced by 2021 uh, that Urbit was going to be serious. Before then, it was probable, but things started to escalate to the point where I thought it made a lot of sense to start you know, looking long-term that Urbit will succeed. Most of the major blocks that could happen that would make it crater seem to be more or less solved or on the path to being solved. And there was a lot more momentum. And so then it kind of collided in a really nice way, you can almost say, where um, my my current two co-founders at DC Spark, Nico and Sebastian, uh, they both also wanted to leave Emergo. And so we all decided to come together and build a new company called DC Spark in April, 2021. And why, so that why was- Why DC Spark, sorry. by the way? Yeah, uh, what, what's, yeah what's, what's with the name? Uh, effectively, it just stands for like decentralized uh, DC and then Spark. So like a decentralized Spark. So we're not really like crazy. So the name isn't like the most inspirational thing on earth. But for example, like um, uh, in that startup accelerator that I was part of, uh, our current CEO, Nico, was also um, on the board there for choosing projects. And so we have a lot of connections also um, in regards to startup accelerators. And so we're also not uh, against the idea of helping other companies eventually um, get into either crypto or potentially into urban stuff too. And so, you know, we're interested in the technology itself and helping the ecosystems grow a lot. And so whether that's specifically our company is a product-based development company. That's our main focus and goal. But we're not restricted there. And we have a lot of experience, you know, like helping startups. We have experiences uh, specifically. I've helped, uh, well, I did teach a course. <laughs> this is a weird story, but um, I mean, do you mind if I jump into random side yeah, stories? Yeah, please. I, I love yeah. digressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'll digress into a digress into a digress. Um, so <laughs> uh, when I was at Emergo, uh, I ended up teaching a course about blockchain in India. <laughs> it was uh, just a teleconference like over Zoom, uh, but it was pretty rough and it was kind of hilarious because due to various matters, all the teachers had decided that either they could not show up or they were not capable or somewhere in between <laughs> to um, uh, teach the course that we wrote the material for because we wanted to help support them. And, and so what ended up happening is that I had to wake up at like 3.30 a.m. on like a Saturday morning, a Saturday, Sunday, two weeks back to back and teach for six hours straight with like one break in the middle. <laughs> and it was just like the most miserable experience I had in terms of just <laughs> nonstop talking. Like it was literally like, you know, I had slides that were like presentations an hour each and by the end of it, I barely knew if I was like making sense, but it was just like nonstop well, you're, blockchain you're, crypto. You're, yeah. This uh, like who's the audience? Is it Indian people, or you're talking about India to some other? Audience? Right. So this was um, a university in India that was doing a <laughs> blockchain course, <laughs> right. and they were partnering with our company. And specifically, um, you know, things just happen and manifest in such a way that no one was available. And specifically, some of the topics were quite technical. And some of it was just more on the consensus layer. 
of uh, how does the blockchain work and you have to kind of actually explain it properly to them because this was also going to be recorded and used in some courses uh, post. And so you can't just throw someone random with no idea and read the slides because, you know, that's effectively useless. Um, and so, yeah, it's between consensus stuff and some smart contract stuff for like uh, a functional smart contract language called Plutus that wasn't even released yet. And so like I had some experience back then because uh, I was one of the first people like reading the source code and doing some very small PRs to that and building like educational material around Plutus. And so, you know, I was like the only person available for that. And so I had the great honor of waking up at 3.30 a.m. and teaching for six hours and then, you know, dying for the next week because I was burnt out. <laughs> but yeah. And this is all like via Zoom, I assume, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I had the great enjoyment of just, you know, uh, you didn't even get a you didn't even get a trip to India, so you just had to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, it was very <laughs> it's not even worth it, right? Like looking back, it's a funny haha, okay, cool. But I mean, it was worth it, I guess, so that I could say I did it, but it wasn't that great at the time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, so okay. um and how so did I get into that diatribe? I don't know. We've, we've regressed now to, to to some base case that I don't even remember where we started from. Right. So I was talking. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I was how did we get? To, um, yes. So yeah, I can uh, go pop back up the stack there. Um, yeah. <laughs> pop out the stack. Thank um, you. Yeah, we love we love a good stack joke on the stack. Right. By the way. I didn't even mean to do that. It just happened. Well, you're, uh, so, you're if 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 blockchain doesn't work out for you, I'm sure you've got a podcast career ahead of you. Perfect. There's no money in oh. blockchain, I've heard. So no, no, but there's <laughs> a lot in podcasting. So I'll uh, send you my CV at some point. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, great, thanks. Um, I, I will say I only work for Doge and Shiba Coin, though. So you know, well, uh, we're we're just shoveling. We frankly, we're shoveling money into the furnace right now because we've got too too much. <laughs> <laughs> too much <laughs> cash on hand. <laughs> Great. And then uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, if we ever, uh, you know, run out of money at DC Spark, instead of going to some investors with millions and billions of dollars, we'll just come to come me. Just talk to me. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Glad to have your support. Yeah. Um, yeah. So effectively, besides all that fun stuff um, at Emergo, um, me and my co-founders, decided to create DC Spark in April 2021, like I mentioned. And so the reason for that is we wanted to build projects that were kind of out of scope of the company, as I was saying. So I really wanted to go in the urban direction and which we'll talk about more, you know, in the coming minutes and so forth around Urban Pfizer and other projects we're working on. And my co-founders wanted to go more in directions that the company wasn't that interested in internally due to various matters, you know, just differences in opinion and so forth. And so we decided, hey, you know, we're very capable guys. We have a lot of connections because, um, you know, between us, we're in the blockchain space, uh, you know, depending on who from 2016, 2017. And, you know, some of us, uh, you know, were at the startup accelerator called D-Lab, which is actually one of our investors uh, at the C-Spark as well. Uh, Nico was, you know, one of the directors there helping uh, lead D-Lab at the time. And we had a lot of other connections from being at Emergo. Uh, we interface with a lot of external companies. And so effectively for us, it made a lot of sense because we had a lot of good connections, a lot of people liked us. And so then when we decided to make the jump and create DC Spark, it wasn't that hard to do our first funding round. And we ended up closing that, I think in June, we had a second funding round in 
August slash early September. I think we closed that pretty much. Um, and so we went from, you know, being effectively in the management positions. Uh, it was like I was head of research, Nico was CTO, and Sebastian was project manager of a major project there. And so we swapped over from that to then being CSO, CEO, and CTO of DC Spark. I, I want to ask you about some of you. I'm going to get to Urban, but I want to ask you about some of the other stuff real quick, yep. which is uh, I, I've noticed that th- that um, there seems to be like a a Cardano contingent there. I don't know if that's you or not, but I I've I've noticed mm-hmm. that that's there. Um, and I'm I'm not going to speak well or ill. I just want to know <laughs> like. Uh, but before we get to Urban, I just want to know about some of your yep. other projects, basically. Yeah, so I can give you a bit of background from my side, how I got into that. Um, so Emergo, the company we were at before, is one of the three founding companies of Cardano. And so yep. obviously it focuses on a lot of Cardano stuff. And so on my side specifically, I got into Cardano in late 2017 when it initially launched, primarily due to the fact that I was in the whole um, functional programming and uh, proof, uh, automated proof uh, systems slash dependent type theory uh, side of things. So I was interested in Haskell, uh, Idris, Lean, Cock, and so forth. And so Haskell is you know the more popular functional programming language that some people may know of. And that's what Cardano is written in. But I was primarily more interested in more of the, you could say, nicely nerdy and academic side of the functional world and specifically type theory uh, with like dependent types and doing theory proving. And so I was like, you know, you could argue a little bit overly excited <laughs> about the idea that, hey, we can use all of this, you know, very academic tooling and all of this stuff that's like really on the edge of what is possible from a academic perspective in proving what programs can do with type theory. So I was really excited well, about that. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, that's, that sure. that is one of the the critiques that people have a lot, which is that it's that Cardano. Uh, I, I think that the the um, the com- the Cardano community is is full of um, academics, and then you have like Charles Hoskinson, who's also uh, often said, you know, he he uh, puts that forth as as a um, as a bonus for Cardano, which is that you know a, a lot of you. A lot of you fucking nerds love it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or rather, rather. I mean, to to be really uh, accurate about the the critique, it's that, and this is not coming from me because I, I like anybody who gives me money, but uh, <laughs> the critique is that that it's it's too much, um, too academic, and and not enough for a yep. real world experience, and and or not experience, but rather not enough um, trial, you know, real world real, real world trial. So I, I think it's it's interesting to hear you as someone who is very into Cardano say uh, the thing that really interests me about Cardano is the fact that it's very academic and and so uh, I would like sort to of theoretical. There, just to be clear. okay, go ahead. Um, that's how I got into it, right? <laughs> right. Okay. And so you know, um, like with most of these things, you know, you have initial vision, and then when it comes to having the rubber hit the road, you see what happens, right? right? So right. just to be clear, I was a big fan of Cardano initially primarily due to the fact that I was, you know, this type theory nerd and interested in all this stuff. And so that's what I jumped into that. And there seemed to be a lot of promise, especially um, early on, just because there was a lot of excitement. And so over time, and this kind of relates to, you know, seeing how fast things have shipped. Obviously, things have not shipped fast at all for Cardano, if we're being perfectly honest. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. That's clear. And so 
to me personally, I don't think it's okay. Without being controversial, Cardano didn't hit a lot of milestones and that's not great. And that wasn't very exciting for me either, right? So I was someone who's very excited about this project late 2017. And so I was so excited, for example, I flew myself out to Edinburgh for the conference in 2019 when they released the functional programming language Plutus, the smart contract language that later, you know, I was mentioning I taught to uh, University of India. So I was one of like the first people who like went to the conference. Uh, I read the source code because there was like no educational material. Their quote unquote release was just uh, you know, publishing the code base. And so I pretty much taught myself uh, the language because I was so excited for it because I expected, okay. There's a lot of money behind this. There's a lot of opportunity and we can start to move into, you know, having smart contracts be more secure based off of this whole vision of, you know, a nicely typed and uh, theory proven world of smart contracts. And that's possible in the Ethereum model, uh, but due to the fact that it's uh, Turing complete and it's account based and there's a lot of mutations, it's a lot harder to do theory, pro three, sorry, theory proving and to formally verify like Solidity or EVM based contracts. And so the vision was like really great in my opinion, but clearly the execution hadn't turned out that great. And I don't want to disparage either uh, Cardano overall, but I personally do think there's a lot more excitement to be found within the world of Urbit, which is why I'm not really that uh, focused on Cardano anymore. You know, I was excited by the initial vision and I saw it had a lot of potential, but looking at what has happened up to this point, it's clear that in execution, it's been not perfect and sometimes very far from perfect at that. And so suffice to say, that's one of the things that also got me interested in moving in other directions and specifically in Urbit because, you know, everyone has a vision when they create a nice project and you convince a lot of people to get behind your blockchain project or, uh, you know, whatever your project is, whether it's, uh, you know, peer-to-peer -peer in nature and more focused on, uh, identity networking and computation like Urbit, whether it's a blockchain or whether it's something else. If you can get a lot of people behind your vision, there's a lot of potential there, right? And so that's kind of the interesting part to me is if you ha theoretically have good fundamentals and you convince enough people to get behind your vision and uh, the image of what you want to create in the future, you can see that there's a lot of potential there. Sometimes that potential is capitalized on really well and sometimes, you know, it's capitalized on okay, and other times it's just horribly thrown away. With Cardano, I'm not gonna say whether it's okay or thrown away or it's doing great, that's up for everyone to decide on their own. But being realistic, Urbit I think has orders of magnitude greater potential at this point in time in history for what it can accomplish. And also in regards to the amount of people who really believe in the vision and who have the capabilities to execute. I think there's pretty much no other ecosystem that's even close to that, unless you know there's already billions and billions of people. But in terms of the ratio of people in Urbit, and even compared to, you know, let's say top 50 blockchain projects, I'd say probably, you know, Urbit is unknown to the vast swaths of crypto people. But like if you look at top 50 coin market cap, I'd probably say 75% of those projects have maybe only like a fourth or not even as good uh, a developer community as Urbit. And that's pretty crazy when you consider the fact like how many billions and billions of dollars all those projects have altogether. But the thing is they just don't really have 
the vision potential and also, first of all, the good underlying tech and fundamentals to make anything happen. Because half of them are just, okay, let's fork some other project or take some different consensus stuff, put it together with these other five parts that other people created. And okay, it's a new blockchain. But that's all boring, right? It's just, okay, a blockchain, maybe it's a bit faster. Maybe it has XYZ benefits. And there's going to be some blockchains at the end of the day that win out in the end and they have a better smart contract platform, they have a better language, they're faster, you know, they have XYZ benefits. But at the end of the day, it's just another blockchain. And one of these will win. Blockchains will continue to exist. And that's awesome and we need them. And that's important to like focus on those and see which ones are good. However, what's much more interesting to me is what are all the problems that all these blockchains face? They all kind of suck in many various standpoints, especially from the off-chain perspective, because they're all just stuck living in this ecosystem of crappy server-client relationships. Uh, most of the peer-to-peer -peer aspects of blockchains are not working that great. Often they have to come up with these duct tape solutions where they have relays that help relay uh, where the other peers are. And then you have to have, you pretty much have to just create this, you know, duct tape monstrosity just to make these blockchains work. And half the time, because they don't have good primitives, they end up like centralizing by trying to bring the nodes closer together uh, just because, you know, they're trying to, address some of the fundamental problems they're running into by looking at the old way or by following the old way of looking at things. And even from the developer perspective, the on-chain and off-chain experiences of all of these blockchains are quite crappy because off-chain, it's just, you know, everyone's like doing multi-sig either via like Discord or some, you know, Telegram uh, signal if they're not already using like Gnosis Safe. Or if you want to send some messages and, for example, you're not on Ethereum, there's just no solution for half of these ecosystems because there is no off-chain uh, focus on messaging and identity. Even in the blockchain world, all the identity uh, projects, you may have seen like in the 2017 ICO boom, there was like five different identity projects and they were all just crappy tokens that like, hey, you know, invest in us will take over everything and Amazon will use our identity solution. And no one really asked the question, why? Like, what is good about you? Nothing. Obviously in the ICO boom, half of those projects are just scams to take money from people. But right. if we're you know, gonna be a bit more serious about that, all those projects just sucked because they had terrible fundamentals and there was really nothing inspiring about them because the technology sucked. But the one thing that's really interesting about Urbit and why I really, you know, pivoted and you know I'm now uh, mostly focused on building out Urbit within DC Spark is that there is so much potential. There's such a good solid dev base and you know the sky's the limit at this point. And so it really doesn't make any sense for me personally to focus on other projects. And granted um, we can go into all of the different directions DC Spark is looking at because we're not uh, Cardano focused as a company. We're also uh, building on Solana and you'll also relate to EVM stuff. So we have uh, also a sidechain called a sidechain project called Macomeda and a crypto wallet called Flint Wallet, which we can jump into if you're interested in. Uh, but effectively, yeah. <laughs> so effectively, we're really focused on building good products and pushing 
both crypto orbit and the entire like peer-to-peer sphere forward and whatever is the most promising in that direction that's what we're going to focus on and that's a, as a company like our core value okay so you mentioned you mentioned solana which is is pretty hot right now so let me like talk about that for a second because i've i've heard people make the the comment you know, it's it's kind of like putting putting it on top of like a, a, a Postgres, you know, like putting blockchain on on top of Postgres. The the point being that that uh, Solana and some of these other solutions are not not really decentralized. But the 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 thing is that 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 seems to be very profitable and might be sort of like a optimal for certain situations. I don't know. So what's your what's the what's the angle there? I guess. There's a lot I mean, of different making making money is making a shitload of money is a <laughs> uh, valid answer by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all we care about. We don't care if we're using a Postgres database. We don't care if we're using carrier pigeons. Our only profit, our only motive is purely profit. And well, that's I why say- we are creating a new coin <laughs> that's going to be named after another dog. No, um, <laughs> and that's today wait. on the Stack Podcast. Call in today, yeah, man. 233-122, and get your free DC Spark dog coin today. Our our um, 12 listeners will, will fucking really fund you. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, 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 I got to tell you uh, that the, uh, you know, this is this is like a Sam Bankman freed thing, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, and he's, it's, it, it, I have this amusing story, which is that, that um, uh, I got in, I think I, when I really got into things, I got into Herb at first, but, but. Urbit sort of opened the door for DeFi summer for me, so I wasn't into mm-hmm. blockchain that much before, um, right. before DeFi summer, which was um, you know like anybody listening to this podcast going to know what I'm talking about. But uh, you know when when DeFi sort of blew up, and I think I, I'm not sure if you'd agree with me, but I think the reason that that DeFi kind of blew up when it did was because um, Chainlink allowed for a lot of uh, allowed security that that wasn't there before and sort of a lot of stuff came together at the same time but uh and also also um uh uni exist uh came into existence and um took over from from bancor which which uh invented the the uh, amm sometime in like what late late 2018 or 2019 something like that i think right anyway yeah and uh it it, it, anyway, so this this stuff happened. Like it really blew up around the summer of uh, 2020, and this is the time when um, people who who are listening may may remember um, the food coins or the food. Yep. You know, everything was everything was something like pickle dot finance or uh, mushroom dot finance or whatever. You know, and um, anyway, my my moment with Sam Bankman Freed and the reason that he will forever be on my like like my grandkids will feud with his grandkids forever was that <laughs> i got in i got into sushi right um like right before the i don't know if you remember this but but you probably do because you're you're kind of into it but uh, right before the uh sushi sushi chef decided that he was going to rug the community for like a yeah. <laughs> hundred million dollars story, something yeah. Like yeah 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 so i got it i got into DeFi. Yeah, a little bit before that, but like one of my, one of my one of um, well, I just want to send a letter to the IRS. One of my Chinese wife's trades, mm. uh, because I don't I don't actually deal in crypto at all, was right. that uh, <laughs> she bought 
sushi right before the sushi chef decided to rug the whole community. And um, anyway, then then uh, our hero Sam, you know, swept in and and saved the day. And that didn't look weird at all to anybody. He's just a guy. He's just a hero, you know, coming to save the community from this evil sushi chef who stole all of our money. And now he owns he owns uh, the FTX stadium in Miami, but whatever. No relationship between these two things. <laughs> um, oh, shit. Where was I, man? I don't even know what I was talking about. Anyway, this is my introduction to Sam. And Sam, right. by the way, is like everybody knows, I think, that the Solana ecosystem exists because – or not, not exists, but, you know, like – uh, the energy exists because of uh, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. And anyway, I gave him a shitload of money, and that's why he owns um, the stadium in Miami right now. That's that's. I just want to. I just want to. Sorry, man. I just wanted to vent. I just want to use this podcast as my. You just want your own stadium of your own. <laughs> I do, and he stole that. He took that from me. He took that from right, right. Sam. If you're listening, I know you're not listening. Yeah, as but... long as you stick with Urban long enough, I'm sure you can buy two stadiums <laughs> and show up. I show him up, well, uh, you know, maybe in a few years. That's the dream. Sam, I'm that's coming for you. <laughs> Let it be known from this podcast. Cast <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, just going back to sorry. Uh, your points about that was insane. Centralized. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to wrap that back up. So, yeah, so there's a certain trade-offs, right? So you have like Binance Smart Chain, for example. That's like right. a fully centralized chain. And yeah. there's no real apprehensions there. Like, you know, no one's joking to themselves. Oh, no, it's uh, maybe decentralized. No, it's just centralized. Um, so then you have arguments of the more you centralize, the easier it is to scale and do high throughput, right? Solana specifically isn't taking a shorted approach. Like, say, Ethereum 2.0 is... Um, Polkadot is they have more of a parrot chain approach rather than sharding, but they're pretty close. Or some of these other uh, you know uh, blockchains that are uh, touting to be high throughput, high scaling. Solana decided to go more the uh, not per se centralized, but uh, choosing a lot of parameters and design decisions, which are going to require that the nodes are more geographically close to each other, for example, because they have such a low block time. Um, that's only, you know, like half a second approximately. And so these decisions are a lot more decentralized than Binance Smart Chain, for example, because there's a proof of stake system and to become a validator, you have to put up stake or get delegation slash both. Um, and so what that means is this is a trade-off, right? So. Bitcoin is, you know, pretty optimal for a fully decentralized system that has a lot of robustness, robustness, and is able to withstand uh, a lot of pushing and pulling. You know, China ban all miners. Bitcoin kept going forward. If that same situation happens for something like Solana, that's probably not as trivial, and it will start to be felt. Uh, it's not just you know that robust, that fast to keep uh, chucking on forward. And so it's inherently a set of trade-offs, right? Will, if, you know, if you're like a crypto, uh, you know, maximalist and you just want decentralization, decentralization, and you're a, like, you just envision that any centralization at all is the end of the world, 
then Solana is clearly not for you. Is Solana the solution to all future DeFi? No, because a lot of these you know, up and coming sharding blockchains can tout potentially, you know, this hasn't been proven yet in practice, but they do tout that you can have very high throughput, but with better decentralization and not have like this real reliance on just a single chain that has high throughput and really trying to force that on people. But then those have alternative issues also on their side as well, because they have to try and figure out how do you have um, these different shards interact with each other and have composability between dApps on these different shards. And so these are all different problems. And so Solana, it's not you know a perfect solution that solves everything and wow, blockchains are done, right? That's not the case. But it's a specific set of trade-offs that in the current ecosystem of blockchains, has a lot of benefits, you know, in a world where doing like a Uniswap exchange costs like $160 USD or something. I did that like two days ago. You know, it's just, it's a lot of money. And if you can have an ecosystem that still is reasonably decentralized and provides a lot of benefits in terms of just having higher throughput because it's designed in certain ways that makes it a lot from both like transaction execution to the, you know, proof of history that they're using that it is higher throughput and able to sustain the needs of people uh, much better means that it's actually not that terrible of a choice. And in fact, I would argue it's actually a pretty decent blockchain, all things considered, if you think the trade-offs are fine based off of your risk analysis of maybe, you know, I don't want to dive into politics, but geopolitically, which you think blockchains, how they will go in terms of like their legal the legal perspective of how countries will treat blockchains, whether you think they need to be more robust like Bitcoin in order to survive the next five or 10 years from a regulatory standpoint, and in terms of just how you feel in terms of security. You know, Solana does use you know asymmetric crypto, so no one can really steal your money, but there are edge cases that can happen. Like we've seen, I think a couple of weeks ago, where the blockchain stood still for 17 days because they hit an edge case where they had to have a contention because uh, I believe, I think there was a bug found two weeks ago and there was another case where um, a contention had to be treated in the past few months. And so these are not great and it shows that there's still some centralization there because they don't have, for example, an automated system for dealing with contentions, which you know typically requires stake slashing in a proof of stake system like Solana. And so they still have a lot of work to do, but None of these blockchain projects are perfect and they all have issues. And it's all, we're at the point where you just have to make trade-offs because there isn't the perfect solution. And maybe in five to 10 years, there will be blockchains that really, you know, kick it out of the ballpark or hit it in the ballpark um, for, you know, the perfect mix between decentralization and scaling in such a way that smart contracts can, you know, scale to the entire globe. But we're not there yet. And from the DC Spark perspective, we think Solana did a really good job from the engineering standpoint in regards to how they built out like the off-chain on-chain tooling for smart contracts. They used Rust, which is a great language, and they made some really good design decisions from the uh, smart contract dev and the dApp development perspective, which makes them actually a pretty good decision to build on top of. Also because, you know, like I was saying earlier in this interview, there's a lot of potential there and there's a decent amount of people moving to Solana. So as long as someone is comfortable enough with the trade-offs being made, then 
personally, I don't think uh, it's something that's, you know, a bad blockchain, but I don't think it's also the ideal blockchain. It's a set of trade-offs that make sense if you think um, some slight centralization, but it's still generally decentralized, uh, is worth trading off for a smart contract platform today that's fast and costs a few cents for a swap rather than, you know, 160 bucks. All right, let me move you on to the the next topic then, or the the big topic then, which is which is Urbit or DC Sparks um, contribution Urbit. So I guess the the thing that everyone knows you for so far, at least, is Visor and Visor's well secondary thing is Urbit dashboard, right? But the the big sort of development yep. for DC Spark is Visor, right? So can you tell us about Visor for the people who who don't know about that? Yeah, so Urbit Visor is effectively a web extension which turns your web browser into a first-class Urbit client. So effectively what that means is that Urbitvisor um, can hold the credentials to one or more ships that you own or someone else owns and gives you access to, and then allows you to connect to those ships and then expose the functionality of your Urbit ship with a permission layer. So you can kind of consider this like a firewall. And uh, that makes it safe for external websites and external web extensions to interact with your ship and all the data inside of it. And so what in practice that means is that just like how MetaMask is the web extension that everyone uses for Ethereum web dApps. And so you just go onto a website and boom, you know, you, uh, you want to do a unit swap swap. You just choose the different uh, coins you want to swap between. You enter the numbers. You click swap, MetaMask pops up, and you know you confirm and do everything within MetaMask to interact with Ethereum. So MetaMask becomes like that bridge between the web and Ethereum. For us, Urbitvisor is that same bridge between the web and Urbit itself, and specifically through the Urbit ships that you have connected. Your first product, I think, with Visor is Urbit Dashboard. So maybe you can talk just for a moment about that. And then I have some other questions. Yeah, for sure. So uh, with Urban Advisor, if we just released it by itself, it would be like, oh, cool. Okay, you built a place where I can store my credentials and makes it you know, two seconds to log into Urbit because, um, and just to be clear to people, uh, one of the nice things about Urban Advisor is that we treat your Urbit credentials, so your URL and your less code, uh, just as if it was a private key in a crypto wallet. And so we actually do provide a slightly more uh, safe and secure experience for logging into Urbit because once you put in your credentials into Urbit Visor, it's 100% encrypted and it only gets decrypted whenever you connect to your Urbit ship or when you want to, for example, go to grid slash landscape. And so uh, there's buttons in Urbit Visor that it automatically jump you to landscape. And when that happens, you type in your password the password decrypts your credentials, then uses that to create a cookie slash airlock connection. And then, you know, either connects and allows websites to use that airlock connection through a permission layer or jumps you straight to landscape and logs you in. And so the plus there is you never have to actually expose your lust code to literally anyone because it's stuck in Urbitvisor, 100% encrypted. It's never saved in clear text. It's simply used to create the cookies and then move forward. And so Urban Advisor does provide a benefit there because it effectively keeps your ship safe from, you know, because the current uh, experience for a lot of applications is just, you know, 
copy paste your lost code and give access to everyone anything, everything inside your orbit, which is rather dangerous. So uh, moving past that, uh, we decided that, hey, this is cool. You have a credential store in OrbitVisor and we have this access to your orbit ship, but people need to see how you can actually use OrbitVisor. And so that's why we created Orbit Dashboard. And for anyone listening, you can go to orbitdashboard.com and you can see the website today. And you can go to orbitvisor.com to install OrbitVisor. So Orbit Dashboard is effectively a pretty simplistic web app that shows off both to end users and developers what is possible with Visor without creating like a gigantic project. Orbit Dashboard is something we wanted to build that is a showcase app and it's not something that's going to wow everybody and you know it's going to be the number one app that everyone uses. That's not really the intention there. It's simply to show that, hey, you have a lot of data in your Orbit ship from being on landscape and doing all these different things. You can expose that in charts and graphs. And so that's a way to visually show people this is the data inside your ship looks pretty cool. And for developers specifically to understand, okay, these are the different endpoints and these are the different mechanisms you have to use in order to take that data and then be able to do stuff with it. And so this is more from the perspective of potential JavaScript TypeScript devs who may be interested in Urbit, but currently today they have no good way of doing anything because there's this like gigantic wall where everything is hidden within, you know, uh, the realm of Hoon and you have to pierce through the veil, so to speak, just to understand how anything is built. One of the long-term goals of Urban Visor and us at DC Spark is to try to not just have Visor be a bridge, but to build out enough infrastructure around Visor and educational material and so forth, so that we can have random JavaScript, you know, even like Stack Overflow, copy paste, script kitties come into the ecosystem who have at least a base enough idea of how to like spin up a random web app or fork another web app or web extension, and then be able to come in and simply use Urbitvisor and the Urbitvisor API, uh, which will eventually get easier and easier to use, to then be able to just build entire web apps where they treat Urbit like a backend that's just a bunch of JavaScript endpoints. And oh, okay, cool. So I, you know, uh, send this message to install uh, a key value database, for example, from some other ship. And then that is used to plug into this next uh, endpoint, which then can save some data that the user inputted. And so just have like super easy endpoints and tutorials so that people can just, you know, treat this like some sort of magic backend that they don't even have to configure or do anything with. And the long-term vision there is that once it gets so easy, they can have just random JavaScript devs jump in and they don't actually have to manage a backend, which if some of you who have um, done any web development or build any web apps, you know, the backend experience and like supporting all that is actually often the hardest parts, especially when you need to scale. But if we can get the developer experience to the point where it's literally just as easy as other backends, Plus, they don't have to deal with the backend themselves because everyone has their own urban ship and it takes care of itself. And that, you know, all that dev time and focus is outsourced. Then really we can, you know, within a six to 12 months time, imagine an ecosystem where all this infrastructure is in place. And we can really start to see more and more uh, of these, you know, front end devs who don't have that, you know, real good programming uh, language background to or functional programming background, or even the desire to dive deep into Hoon, 
but they can still contribute and build a lot of things, which is kind of the core vision of Urbanvisor. In addition to effectively taking a lot of the benefits, data, and content itself from the existing web and being able to bring it into uh, Urban itself. So what's missing from Urbit then? Like right right now, what's missing from from Urbit to uh, plug into the Urbit completely and use it as the backend? Right, so that's, there's like two directions to that question. So the first thing in regards to, from a content perspective, the majority of the internet is on, or the majority of people are on the existing web two internet, right? So all the content right. is on Twitter, all the content is on various blogs or news sites, you know, scattered across the internet. And so sure, you and your friends can build the best applications on Urbit and live in your own world. And that's a future that I think in five to 10 years that will start to take over, but we're not there yet. And I think, at least personally, this might be slightly controversial. I think it's slightly not the most wise thing on earth to assume that's the only direction we should build in and not to start to focus on bridges. Because sure, we have you know a lot of potential, like I was saying before, really good people. But if we really want four things to take off, unless we bridge all the content from the existing web, you know, step by step, by step, piece by piece onto Urbit, people are still going to be using the old web. Sure, your specific use case will live on Urbit and you and your friends will use it. Just like you, know, you and I both use landscape and it's great uh, for what we use it for. But we still use Twitter. We still use all these different services. And so the end goal is to make it so easy and make a lot of tools, such as one of our upcoming grants that we're implementing right now is a Twitter UV extension. And so this is a web extension that interacts with Urbanvisor and effectively uh, injects code into Twitter when you visit the website and it'll allow you to have a share button on every single tweet, which then talks to Urbanvisor directly and allows you to share any tweet onto any channel in landscape within like you know a second and a half or two seconds. And effectively, you know, we're taking over, or now we're taking over, we're utilizing the existing web two experience where all the user content is, or even your own content. You know, we can also envision a future where uh, you can use the UIs and the you know, SaaS applications that currently trap your data. And we can build web extensions uh, that effectively say, hey, okay, cool. You have this closed box, this closed ecosystem where you thought you had me trapped but we can take all your data back, put it in Urbit, and you can start to regain all of that. And so the transition between the old world and the new world is not that easy. And I think us building out things like this Twitter UV extension, which I mentioned, where you can share any tweets, we're also gonna be implementing an unroll feature. So rather than have like crappy unroll bots, which send out uh, the long form text of a thread in Twitter to a different website, you can just archive that into your Urbit ship for archival purposes. You can post it in a public notebook so that everyone can see it. You're effectively using the existing web, not as you know this adversarial network that you never want to touch, but you're co-opting all the content that already exists there and all of the you know man hours for all the UI that went behind Twitter that people really enjoy. And you know, all these different things that have taken so much time and effort, we can really just use a lot of that infrastructure and rather than you know just sticking up our noses and say oh no we're better than them we don't want to use anything from them 
I think it makes a lot more sense that, you know, we're in this world, we have to make uh, trade-offs and Advisor enables a lot of this where sure, we have all this new functionality that's now accessible to web apps and web extensions where, you know, in a moment's notice, you can send a message all across the world just by knowing someone's pat P and doing a lot of stuff based off that. But we could also co-opt the old world, take all the content that we find useful and start to pull it in. And that's kind of the long-term vision of Advisor is to make the separation between Earth and Mars to effectively you know, bring the two together as close as possible to then create a physical bridge between them. But each of these bridges is effectively owned by every person, right? So we're not creating like a choke point. We're just creating one bridge between Mars and Earth. But every single person's ship connected with Advisor effectively become their own bridge where they are selective of what's the actual useful content from the web that I found that I want to bring into Urban. And so besides the Twitter UV extension, we're also going to be creating like a Firefox pocket clone. I'm kind of like uh, brainstorming, maybe to call it like archive, still thinking about the name, but effectively the idea is we can start to build out web extensions that, you know, uh, save links to websites, save the actual content from the websites and bring them into Urbit. And eventually maybe we could even do something like the Wayback Machine, where you can literally copy the entire page pixel perfect as it was when you saw it and bring it into Urbit. And then maybe you can like timestamp it and post a signature or like sign it uh, so that you can have uh, you know, some level of assurance that you yourself say that this is the date that you took it on. Or you know you can do more complex like uh, protocols where you have a set of stars, for example, that try to um, all sign off and try to timestamp it. So you can have like Urbit stars as a timestamp service, for example. There's a lot of different ways you can try and do more decentralized versions of all of these solutions like the Wayback Machine. But suffice to say, Advisor is trying to make all this possible and build the infrastructure and also examples with all these different apps like Dashboard, uh, the Twitter UV extension, Archive, and so forth, so that people can get inspired and also build stuff. So it's not just us at DC Spark, but we you know, set the stage, lay the foundation, and we start to build projects but hopefully inspire others to come in and hopefully do even cooler stuff. One of the critiques of Urban is if, if you go on Hacker News, they'll, there, there'll be some thread about you guys, uh, you know, you say you're doing decentralization or you say you're doing, um, you know, like this new operating system and yet you use Linux or something like that. There's There, there are these kinds of critiques. And um, the reply is that I, I, I think that within the community, people say, as we're working toward, like, we're getting the kernel to to Kelvin zero, which I think it's currently on, like, Kelvin 419 or something like that. But the the process of going from where we are to, like, Kelvin zero on Urbit, where we have this sort of, like, beautifully crystalline Urbit, Urbit structure that, that has taken over the world, the critique is, you know, like, oh, you guys are using Linux, so you guys are, are, are take, you know, using... Uh, whatever, uh, HTTP, right? You're communicating over HTTP. I thought you guys were creating this whole new internet, right? This is the critique from the outside, but but um, the idea is that while we're moving the kernel from like wherever it is to Kelvin Zero and while, while we're creating these sort of new communication protocols, you know, it, it, at some point after 20 years of development, it, it had to be the case that people decided we're going to 
start taking taking stuff from the from the the old world and using it for now at some point everything will be urban that's the that's the dream right everything yeah. eventually will just be urban and um you know those of you who are on hacker news shitting on us in 2017 will be the fellaheen of the new uh urbit universe and i will be i i will use your i will use your grandsons as my footstools or whatever but uh yeah, I mean, like this is this is the this is the uh, sort of interim period where what I'm doing is praising in a very weird way, Visor, which is to say that uh, it allows it allows for leveraging quite a lot of these. What, what, what can I say? Well, web two, web two technologies and a lot of that content that's out there on the the internet, and it allows people like me who can only barely put together like a Pern stack uh, website to be able to integrate. You know, so yeah, like as you say, bridge sort of go from from my meager experience to actually s- s- integrate my my content and my um, my experience into Urbit. Uh, so this is a roundabout way of you know hating all my enemies and saying thank you for advisor. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> glad to hear you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, what what do you see then? Um, we've talked. Urban dashboard very very quickly uh, allows you to look at statistics for Urbit, so everyone should go check that out. And it also um, provides but, an easy interface. Just to uh, wrap that right up, there. Uh, for um, issuing pokes, scries, threads, and subscriptions. And so, if someone's a developer, and um, you know you don't feel like being in Dojo nonstop, or you're testing airlock stuff or external applications, the dashboard will make it a lot easier to test your call agents or like various interactions between threads and goal agents and so forth. So it's much more of a dev tool and also just a shiny app so people can see, oh, this is something you can do. And all the code is also open source, just uh, both for Urbanvisor and dashboard and everything else we're going to do in the ecosystem. Uh, at least for now, the plans are for that. And so you can find exactly how to do all of this yourself and replicate it for your own use cases. Or what can you see DC Spark doing going in the future with uh, urban development beyond? Well, not just beyond Visor, but where where's Visor going to go? And then what else? Yep. Give me give me some give me some some of that juicy. <laughs> I need. Hey, uh, and Josh, I apologize. I just just got on. Oh, hey, I missed you, man. What have you guys hey. talked about? I, oh, we were talking. I'm about just kidding. Time. I'm just kidding. I, it's not fair. I I ended up stuck in the hospital <laughs> all day. Um, so, but I'm, I'm here now. Oh, and Hey, what happened? Uh, I mean, I, was I, it just like, no, I had, I had this like, uh, um, AIDS related thing. You know, I had, I had, right. I had grids. No, I had, um, uh, this like growth on my forehead and like it changed color and everything. So I had it removed last week and then they took the stitches out and then like, both of my and then I had to take my daughter in the morning and then my son was sick in the afternoon COVID who knows so that that's what happened is this so, are you are growth. you bullshitting right now or did you really have a growth on your forehead I really had a growth on my forehead you can ask how I did a I, I did a um uh, my wife did not beat me it was um <laughs> no no no. I was gonna say she she, she cucked <laughs> you and you, you started growing a horn <laughs> kind of <laughs> Um, no, it was, I mean, I don't know this, this, this should stay in the recording. It was like this growth that it, I mean, like, it came like 15 years ago and then it like shrank down. And my doctors always said like, don't worry about it unless it changes character. And then like a week and a half ago, it started, you know, 
changing character. Not, yeah, like not being the same. So I was like, all right, we're just gonna do it. Um, and you know, so I went, live, you don't have a brainworm or something. I, I, I am too, and it, like the benefit was like I went to like a plastic surgeon here and and like. Oh, nice. So you look better too. Uh, well, he had some pretty hot nurses. So. Oh. Um, <laughs> Anyways, but um, now my question is like for open source, obviously uh, some of that is like your personal values and everything. But like, how do you how do you end up like building a business around that? Right. So it's a good question. So right now, obviously, everything we're doing in Orbit is based off of grants, and that's great. But obviously, that's not sustainable indefinitely. I'm assuming you know we're not just gonna have this steady stream of stars forever and ever because there's all obviously a finite amount, and also it'd be good for the foundation to you know, be able to spread those out to many different people and organizations. Um, so then in the short term, our current aim is just to focus on building out this ecosystem and infrastructure around Urbanvisor. And so, you know, some of that includes like right now, one of the very first things we're doing, this isn't very functional, but in terms of UX and UI, we're doing a major redesign now because I'm sure most of you have seen Advisor. It looks like a dev side project. And the reason why we released it like that is because functionality is more important than shiny, shiny in Urban right now. And so even though we are going to make Advisor a lot nicer in the next two or three weeks, probably. So stay tuned for a nice uh, big update that'll have it, you know, look like an actual product and not, you know, just a side project. Uh, besides that, we're really looking at building up the foundation around Urbanvisor. So then it'll be a lot easier for us to do a bigger project. And so um, DC Spark, right? Uh, we're a decently sized company at this point. Uh, we're, like I mentioned, uh, seven months old, but we already have, I think, like 23 to 25 people. I forget the exact count. We're hiring a lot. Um, and so we have, you know, a good swath of investors, I think probably 20 to 30 between the two rounds we did. And so we have a lot of potential for what we can build and we're not afraid of doing bigger projects. Like I mentioned before, you know, we're also building a cryptocurrency wallet in addition to also doing a entire um, sidechain project, both on Solana and Cardano. And so we're pretty comfy with managing teams to build quite large projects that also do hold a lot of value. And so right now, Urbit's at this point where it's not ready for prime time to really build out this, you know, professional product that, you know, people can have their entire organizations rely on 24 seven. It's just not that stable yet, especially with like the recent software um, distribution OTA and so forth. But we can see a future where that's not that far off. And so I think realistically what's going to happen is all the projects that we do related to Urbanvisor uh, that are grant material, that's all going to be open source. And going down the line, we want to make everything open source as much as we can. However, I think within a six to eight to 12 month time span, things in the ecosystem, including Urbanvisor and otherwise, will mature to the point where we can start to look at bigger projects where you know, we can actually even go out and get investments from uh, external parties uh, and then start to aim to sketch out a larger project, hire more people, and then push in that direction as long as there's a revenue stream. That might be crypto related, that might be more, you know, something uh, for 
businesses and organizations to take advantage of Urbit. So maybe that's a tooling suite that'll replace you know, Google or other stuff. All of these are options on the table and the exact revenue streams for all of this aren't perfectly defined yet because it depends obviously what we want to do. But there's a lot of potential. And so we're not personally worried that, oh, we're just going to spend all this time in Urbit and it's not going to be profitable. We think Urbit's going to happen. It's going to succeed. And so really the question is, when will the ecosystem mature to the point where we can get serious about this stuff and really build large projects that we can start to you know, try and bring in people uh, that want high assurance for whatever they're building? And it, like, if you had to handicap Urbit against those other, like Solana, Cardano, with all the stuff they're doing in Africa, I mean, it's pretty exciting. So, like, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you had to, like, handicap, I mean, like, if you had to rate them, like, where the ecosystems are as far as, like, being worth your time, like, where, where are they? He he did talk about this for for a bit. Uh, okay, okay. So he's yeah he he moved on from you know Andy you should show up on time. There's a there's a matter <laughs> of professionalism, okay. Right. Just because also just because here. your kids are just because your kids are dying and you're you're right. you're growing a horn out of your face. You know I, I <laughs> thought you were a, a good-hearted Christian, but it sounds like you're dealing in the occult or something. And right, horn. <laughs> this is it's getting kind of intense here. All right, uh, well then skip it. No, 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 man. He 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 did say that that uh, he 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 moved on from Cardano. He he spoke well of Cardano in a in an academic sense, but moved on right. from Cardano to to Urbit. Well, hopefully you're holding your bag, I mean, because that's done well. Yeah. Are you holding your bag? Oh, I mean, we don't we don't buy crypto on this show. Uh, just no. yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm addressing the IRS just again. Just academically, uh, like like you know, academically like, speaking, on a test net, on a test net, on a test net. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> on a testnet, do you buy test uh, coins? <laughs> right. Uh, well, I'll refrain from uh, talking about any. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Let Let me change. Let me change then. Like, um, you know, you said that you've grown a lot. You know, uh, we have heard um, it's really hard to find good devs right now. You know, it sounds like you have like a global reach. Like, we know, you know, a friend of ours in Asia who's done some work with you. You know, but like, what? Like, how hard has it been to get that team together? Yeah, so on the Urban side, we're not a very large team. Um, so currently, it's effectively just me, about 60 to 75% of my time, because I'm still helping uh, design and do various things on the other projects. Um, Myrtle Wackdeck, which you guys know, who is a full-time work on Urban Advisor and everything there. And then currently, we also have Neil Davis as an advisor, like very, very part-time. And so between us three, so only one full-time, we're effectively building everything out in Urbit, and we intend to grow that over time, uh, especially as we get into larger projects. But for the other teams um, inside of the company, it's a lot more challenging to hire, I'd say, because Urbit has such a high you know, quality group of people behind it. It's a lot easier to find people who are just excited to build on Urbit, who know enough about Urbit that they can hit the ground running and then just be productive. And like, if I give you a task, you're going to do it. You might come up with your own you know, solution. Maybe it's perfect. Maybe, you know, we need to revamp it a bit and talk about it and like, you know, go back a couple steps to make sure we're on the same page and we hit the right goal. But in general, the people that, you know, I've worked with thus far, 
either, you know, during some of the grants I did for like the Rust airlock and other stuff and talk to people about stuff or inside the CSpark, the urban ecosystem is really great for hiring people overall. For the blockchain ecosystem in general, if someone's really good, they're already hired and getting paid a lot of money. <laughs> and that's just a not great situation. And so that means you typically have like two choices, right? Hire people who other companies didn't want to hire, but have crypto knowledge, which, you know, do you really want to hire these people? Typically, no, because, <laughs> uh, you know, they're just not great developers on average. Or you have to hire people who are good programmers, but without much blockchain experience. And so we've been typically going with the latter. And then we have to effectively upscale these people ourselves, give them a good like one or two months to really start to understand blockchain, just to hold their hands. Um, you know, we expect them to be smart and we preferably do only hire smart people. Not always the case, you know, sometimes some people look promising. After a while, you can kind of see that, you know, they may have, you know, claimed to be able to do more than they did per se. Um, and other times, you know, just not a perfect fit in terms of personality or like the existing teams they're in. And so hiring people has been quite challenging just because for crypto, like everyone's hiring. Uh, it's just not cheap to hire too, which isn't, you know, horrible because it's great to have people who are, you know, uh, building really good stuff paid well. So it's awesome that, you know, from that perspective, but from a startup perspective, you know, it makes it challenging to compete, especially in these ecosystems where, you know, these blockchains have billions and billions of dollars in their coffers and just finding someone who's a good programmer, you know, don't, not even talking about like urban blockchain or anything in general, just finding a good developer is hard just because there aren't like, realistically, there aren't that many awesome developers who can be like a lead dev or someone who just has all their stuff together. They're really smart. Even if they don't know something, they can go read a paper plus technical documentation. And then within a couple hours, be good to go. Those are very hard to find. And then having like domain knowledge just makes it even harder. How much, I mean, if you think about the whole ecosystem, you know, and maybe this is just a ridiculous question, but how much talent is lost to the fact that you can kind of make a lot of money as a black hat rug puller or, you know, a hacker or something like that, you know, and just kind of demolish one of these contracts mm -hmm. instead of building something productive? So that depends, right? Like just being honest about it, we are talking about nerds on average in programming, right? And so I don't think most are predispositions to be that aggressive. Um, I think like just from my personal experience, most programmers are more comfortable having, you know, let's say a team lead who then can guide them in the direction. In terms of like the top, top talent, there's probably some select portion that do go down that direction. Uh, but, you know, it's higher risk and it's, they have to make a lot of trade-offs on their own, uh, which I don't think it's that big of an issue. How often, I mean, like, you know, if you think about the psychology of those people, is it, do they start out with good intentions and then it just overwhelms them, the opportunity that they have to pull it all down? And I would imagine it maps on to like hacker culture from the past 20 years pretty well. Like hacker culture is just be... So good. Yeah, so I was going to say we get a, we get we get quite biased in this little world because, um, well, for for one thing, we just had well, I say we, but you know there was a, was like the kid from Canada, sixteen years old, math genius or whatever, uh, and and an Urbit guy. So like Urbit made it into the news <laughs> because because he 
what, what which protocol was it that he hacked for like uh I can't yeah, I, I don't even think he hacked it to be honest i think no uh, he, he, he the just, right yeah way. it was an economic he, he it was like an, them right i mean like right, they, right, they, right. they messed it up and then they screwed up like, a rounding uh function right. i believe and so yeah. then he just yeah. found it and then abused it and then you know it's not yeah, like I, if it's literally not even hacking it's just yeah 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 it's just like i mean like he he made them look like tits and then made all the money and i think he he gave it back right yeah, I think, yeah, they were able to dox him, but I think, I mean, the last I heard, I'm not sure that there, there may have been something after that, but uh, the last I, uh, I heard about it was that he uh, decided he's going to keep the money and go to court because, you know, code <laughs> yeah. is law or whatever. He's going to make I don't know. I don't know if you're listening or anybody who knows this guy is listening, tell him I think that's the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the ethos, right? Code is law, and and you know you made some some shitty law, uh, clearly. <laughs> this, I mean, there are also questions to just to be clear from a programming standpoint, right? Like, if the economic design of your system or the equations of your system play in a certain way, is that really hacking? Like, because yeah. hacking is more like you abuse typically something in the underlying code. That was not taken account of, but then yeah, explicitly yeah. does something outside of the protocol. So maybe you well, underfollow. Well, that's, and that's like his legal defense, right? Yeah, is that, yeah. that he's going. He's going to. He, his legal defense is: uh, I have done nothing illegal. I haven't stolen any money. I just took advantage of the protocol that you guys built, right? Right. Yeah. So, so this this is a case right now in um, TradFi where, uh, and I won't like get into all the details because it's boring and maybe a lot of people have heard of it, but like Citibank had a um, uh, payment that they were supposed to like model um, and move around, but like not actually pay money out to people who own the bonds because the company was like in bankruptcy. And some guys working in the back office like pressed the wrong button, which made all the money go out of the bank. And so these people who were due the money, many of them returned it, and then many of the hedge funds like did not. They said finders keepers. And there's actually in New York common law, like a finders keepers rule. And so they've huh. been allowed to keep it um, for now. Now I imagine it goes to the Supreme Court and they end up like having to pay it back, but it's been an interesting case. And I think it, it's kind of an, an analogy of, you know, well, it's not our fault you messed up and paid us this money that we were owed, right? Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah. So well, in the know, case yeah. here, it's also yeah. interesting for smart contracts because they don't have like an explicit document that states what they're supposed to do. So it's even harder to argue like, oh, that was a mistake because like, sure, you have a protocol description, but these people don't have like, this is exactly legally what you're supposed to do. And if you interact with a protocol, you agree that you'll only you know, do swaps in XYZ fashion. And so I guess the interesting part there is we might start to see in the future for like trying to make these protocols safer, maybe they'll start to do like legal documents so that like if you use their front end UI or interact with the smart contract itself, then they might just get you to accept their terms of services, which is kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. You're probably right. Well, and then we'll all be talking we'll all be talking about, you know, when it, we we were the the guys living in the wild west of DeFi and stuff like that, just <laughs> just, you know, shoving our oh, well, all right. Chef Chef just, Nomi. I mean like it, I, we, we talked about Nomi. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, he lives here, right? In Hong Kong. 
Oh. oh, maybe. Well, oh, you're making a a, a Sam Bankman Freed reference, which yeah, I yeah, also yeah. made. I, I think it's. <laughs> so, anyways, don't sue me. <laughs> don't sue us, Sam. We are uh, we're we're but meager podcast millionaires. That's all. I was telling I was telling Rob earlier about how much money we make off this podcast. We just have to shove it into a furnace. It's pretty. I mean, I just got the Amazon email they send every month that nobody's bought anything. So, no, Oof. not even like I, you, we, I think the site we doesn't usually, exist anymore, right? Well, right. We sold. Yeah, we we said, make, somebody bought. Somebody bought a Raspberry Pi. That was our biggest. Nice. Um, yeah. Our biggest. I think. I think and that money point, is we still made, sitting in the in the like to be paid to us account. Yeah, we made like five five dollars and thirty two cents off of that, or something like that. Which is huge. Hey, if you a, put that in the bank with compound interest. I don't know if we had bought Bitcoin with it when that <laughs> like was it, or I don't know like pancake swap or something I don't know like it could be worth yeah it. yeah 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 so our Shiba, kids are gonna Shiba Shiba we should have bought Shiba frankly that would probably be worth there. like ten thousand dollars now right I don't... yeah if only I had perfect foresight to put money into the things that go up <sighs> and not yeah. sell them. Yeah, precisely. That's the thing. Like foresight to also know when to sell, which is the harder part. Because like with Shiba, even if you bought in, chances are it would like when you three X, you're like, I'm out. Yeah. yeah, it's like this is this is stupid. I mean, like you know, I mean, a good friend of the podcast, Winter Dozrin, he probably has had like billions of U.S. dollars in Bitcoin through his fingers, and then this year, I think like you know left. Uh, couple hundred thousand in dope because like he bought it at no it wasn't dope it was mine oh, no oh, no yeah, no that, yeah. that, right both stories that's a different like, story you know. so he bought <laughs> dope at like two he bought dope at like two cents and then like it went up and he was like oh i'm gonna buy myself like you know a rothschild lafitte a condo or something, something. a yeah, dumb right. a dumbass condo yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then right and then nina he missed out because he like didn't set his alarm you know, so he didn't get. Well, he he missed the Mina. He he missed six figures on Mina because because they were using that that website for their for their initial token offering, which was garbage. And he was like, ah, I don't really want to wait in line for the next five hours. And uh, I think he woke up the next morning to see that his his the amount of like the the initial amount was something like six figures for off of five hundred dollars. <laughs> so yeah. Anyways, yeah, good times. Yeah, this this is not really germane. Um, <laughs> how are we going to wrap this thing up? We're, we're not a. Uh, this isn't a crypto uh, podcast where we're shilling coins. Oh, I think I joined the wrong one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I told you digressions. Um, digressions are allowed on this show, <laughs> and sometimes we go we go places. Well, you know, if people I, I buy like, rap stars, if you put five bucks in, wait ten years. Who knows? Yeah, there you go. There's there's where we should go with this, which is a couple of other things that are quite interesting. So the next thing that's coming out is Rap Stars. Uh, yeah. It should be it should be out imminently. I think that they're just sort of wrapping up some stuff with with what the, I think, the contract like, for, and making for, for you guys. Like this is interesting because um, I mean you guys are bigger and you could get some chunkier grants, but I think mm-hmm. uh, the uh, face value of Stars has made some of that a little bit trickier to do and with, yep. with app stars um it really opens up a lot of opportunities there i think yeah i think one of the things that also um will be hopefully um possible with like the upcoming uh announcements in the foundation is that 
hopefully the projects that people will do will also be able to build off each other. And so even if you do a small part of a, you know, like a larger project as a grant, uh, because currently like, for example, with like all the airlock grants, for example, I wrote the Rust airlock. I know uh, Myrtle Wackdeck wrote the Elixir one. And so all of these are great, but then nothing happens with them. So like I built a few different uh, apps uh, for desktop, like the content archive where we can like archive group uh, channels into Markdown and all these stuff like that. I did like a chatbot framework and other stuff. But at the end of the day, there isn't like much building on top of that. And so one of the things that I'm hopeful and excited for is that hopefully with um, the upcoming projects in the foundation, like the combine, I believe it's called, um, you're going to have like more actual vision and direction with all of this. So rather than just independent grants being done and then kind of, you know, pushed off to the side, we can start to see much more like, you know, cumulative effects so that, you know, these things build up into bigger and bigger projects and then get sustained and actually managed over time so that they're useful and there's an ecosystem around. Speaking of that, can you tell us just do you have, what, what sort of plans do you see for sort of the immediate future and um, the maybe more distant, like, you know, pie in the sky stuff that you, you might want to do uh, through DC Spark with Urbit? Right. The immediate future, to kind of summarize what I said in long form previously, um, build up all of the infrastructure for Urbitvisor so that it you know, looks good, it's really easy to use, random JavaScript developers can jump into the ecosystem and start building, build out a bunch of extensions that kind of show off what's possible, make life a bit easier from you know, extracting the contents and pulling all of the data from the old world from Earth onto Mars. And then pretty much getting all of that wrapped up with some educational material so that people can just understand how everything works and you know, move forward. On the medium to long term, you know, from the DC Spark perspective, we see that Urbit's gonna do very well. And so long term, it's hard to tell what we'll do exactly, but in terms of media term, we do wanna do a larger project where we can hire some more people and get you know, a serious team building a serious product on Urbit. One of the directions that's open to us is crypto related stuff, right? Because we have a lot of experience in various projects in various ecosystems in the crypto world, it's not that hard now that we have, you know, Urbit on the web with your web browser as a client for Urbit to then, you know, hook up to web dApps, whether that's for a DAO, whether that's for some sort of, you know, agnosis safe, but the multi-sig happens peer-to-peer and it's fully private and end encrypted on your Urbit ships and no one knows anything. It doesn't have to rely like on a centralized server kind of like what Gnosis Safe does. Um, there's a lot of different opportunities and like in that crypto direction. Uh, like I mentioned, we have Flint Wallet, which is a uh, multi-crypto currency wallet that we're building with first-class support for various smart contract enabled blockchains. And so that means you'll be able to have actual DAP support. Plus we intend to add Urbanvisor support to that. So that means you have suddenly uh, identity messaging and off-chain computation in your cryptocurrency wallet. And then that can be exposed as endpoints from Flint wallet itself down the line. So then you can have this first class experience where web dApps can just 
you know, assume you do have a crypto wallet and then check and assume whether uh, you have an urban identity attached. And then they can, you know, start checking, okay, do you have a specific goal agent installed? And then if not, install it. And then from there, you effectively expose the entire world of Urbit to the entire DAP ecosystem. That sounds pretty compelling to me and toss the DC Spark. What's the exact project that will maximize in benefit or maximally benefit from this kind of integration? And like, what's the big thing we want to do? That's not clear yet. And, you know, there's some limitations also, like for some of the stuff, remote scries would be really helpful in Urbit. Uh, rather than having to subscribe to other people or poke them to do stuff. Uh, well, you don't really use pokes to read, but theoretically you could. And so by building up the foundation for Urban Advisor and then you know moving everything forward step by step by step in the ecosystem itself, we're also like probably going to do one grant uh, for Urban to try and clean up some stuff in user space, to expose some more scries, to fix some like uh, casing issues, and also fix some other problems related to uh, exposing data to external applications via airlock. There's some stuff that's kind of only custom focused on landscape and for other use cases doesn't work perfectly. And so we've already submitted a grant to help fix some of those up too. So suffice to say, with all that said and done, uh, we're looking at getting the ecosystem ready for serious external applications, primarily through Urban Advisor, but in general, building out the ecosystem so that it's just stronger and better for external applications so that in a six to eight to 12 month time span, when Urban feels ready and when it makes sense because there's a lot more users onboarded thanks to all the L2 uh, benefits. And once you know everything's more liquid with wrapped stars, and once there's just more excitement and energy as we're starting to feel from assembly in the past couple months, once all that you know keeps escalating, the snowball keeps growing as it rolls down the hill, there's inevitably 26 different directions we can go that will be profitable in some way, shape, or form. And we probably won't have to rely on urban grants forever and ever. That's definitely not what we want to do. And so the direction is there. There's a lot of potential. Everything looks really exciting. We're just not yet finalized on exactly what that thing is for the long term, that pie in the sky that we think, you know, DC Spark will build and will revolutionize X, Y, Z. But we do know it's not that far away. And so, you know, step by step by step, we're effectively putting down um, all of the groundwork to get there. And then from there, you know, maybe I'll come back on this podcast. Maybe I'll, you know, make a public announcement. Otherwise, in the near-ish future, we will you know, probably announce some sort of big project. Great. So if I'm like a first-rate developer on Cardano and Solana and I've decided that I want to do something um, righteous and good with my life, how do I get in contact <laughs> with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah. So if anyone uh, <laughs> is in any ecosystem, urban or otherwise, blockchains or neither, you know, you're just a developer tuning in, um, yeah, feel free to reach out to us at urbit at dcspark.io. That's uh, email. Or you can also go to dcspark.io. And at the bottom of the page, we have a link to go to our careers page. I think that's careers.dcspark.io. But go to the homepage and it's there. And yeah, we have a bunch of positions open. Either get in contact there, email, or you can also DM me on urbit at mockrucksnomdup. I'm sure they'll type that because... I'll type it for you, to- yeah. 
Yeah, perfect. And yeah, so we're more than happy to hire really intelligent, excited people who really want to build on Urban. So feel free to get in contact. And yeah, we really want to expand the team. And so we see a lot of potential. And if you want to join in on that, get in contact. All right. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Stack is a production of the Orbis Ledger. Follow on Twitter at the Orbis Ledger. That's the at symbol and then T-H-E-O-R-B-I-S-L-E-D-G-E-R. For more timely written and long-form Urbit content, or to find the Stack's back catalog, go to orbisledger.news. You are the very model of a modern major general, and we salute you. Until next time, go with Zod. Yeah.